Hello everyone, how are you doing? Welcome to Living on the Edge of Chaos podcast. This is a podcast where we are focused on pushing the boundaries of education and trying to get past the safe comfort zones of things that people have talked about for so long. And in this season of the podcast, we're really going a deep dive into the focus of project-based learning, authentic learning experiences, and truly how to do that uh, in a classroom with all the variables we have, um, while also understanding how important this work is. This is not a new conversation, but I think there's lots of things that have happened since COVID that have expedited change at a faster rate than anyone anticipated. And it's time for our schools to really process that as well, uh, because the world's not slowing down in the rate of change. So today I am beyond excited. I'm happy to call this uh, guest here a, a good friend of mine. Finally was able to see him in person uh, just a, a few months back. We actually collaborated <laughs> on, a, on a project with uh, the work that this guest does uh, for a really amazing authentic learning experience. Um, and I'm speaking about um, the super awesome bow tie wearing Lego minifig champion here, uh, Stephen Smith. So Stephen, <laughs> before we get into all the work and the great conversation we're going to have here, um, I know who you are. But most people probably listening don't know who you are. So why don't you introduce who you are, what you do, and anything else you'd like to share? Wait, you're kidding. You're saying there's people in education who may not know who I am? That's crazy. <laughs> not um, yet. <laughs> so <laughs> I am the, um, the, the STEM education specialist for a collaborative agreement that tech, uh, Texas State University has with NASA. And uh, through that, uh, collaboration, I get to work for NASA at the Johnson Space Center here in Houston, Texas, which is, it's still just fun to say out loud that that's something that I get to do. It's crazy. Um, but my work uh, takes me all over the country, uh, working in a lot of uh, kind of high needs areas. So like high poverty, um, heavy minority, kind of the groups that have been left out of the conversation uh, for a long time in the past. Um, I, and I get to work with amazing other educators like yourself and uh, these amazing teachers that are the, the SEEK crew and, and all these different organizations who are kind of doing this same work that you're talking about. Um, but I get to do it through the lens of, of NASA. And um, because of my position there, I get to be in those meetings. I get to hear where things are heading um, in that sort of um, more uh, the, kind of the, the broader scope, not just the education, but what that, that final product needs to be because of where our industry is heading, where the economy is heading, where technology is heading, and all those sorts of things. So I, I look forward to getting into that a little more uh, with you and, and you know, really talking about the differences that we need to see in education in order to have our students be ready for this world that they will be creating. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I know we've been lucky to work with you. I don't want to spend the whole podcast about the project we did, but um, I was able to work with two incredible educators um, and a sixth grade classroom to pilot a project that we developed. And we're able to work with Stephen quite a bit throughout that in terms of giving feedback. And essentially the challenge was, how do we survive? What are the ingredients required to survive regardless of time, space, and place? And as we look to the future, 
we focused on Artemis and started to have lots of conversations and collaborations uh, with Stephen and really brought a perspective. And I think that's one of the key words through all this is we don't know what we don't know. Uh, the perspective of what's going on outside of our little local filter bubble uh, where we live. And, and that was really powerful. And we were then very fortunate to have you come um, in person to Iowa to see the final exhibition and beyond the kids being jacked and excited, it's just a wonderful opportunity. But from that, I'm gonna play a little audio clip um, that was captured of Stephen speaking to the parents that night. Um, and it wasn't a formal presentation. It was a, a spur of the moment of, of as things were being shared and, and, and expressed and conversations were happening. Uh, Stephen, you brought in a time just to kind of speak to everybody. So I wanna play this small little blip to set the stage, because I think it'll, it'll, it'll be the catalyst for our conversation with the items that you just talked about. Cool. To make sure that this kind of problem-based learning continues to happen in your schools. This, we are not in the industrial age anymore. We are not gonna be working in coal mines. We're not doing those jobs. I'm sure, a time before cell phones. How many people learn to type on a typewriter? <laughs> Think now how many people are working in the cell phone industry, in the laptop, whatever, making apps for these things that didn't exist. That is happening faster now than it did even then. We are working towards and very close to having an actual space economy where private organizations are making money in space. Your kids are as likely to be space entrepreneurs as the people today are to be something on phone apps or whatever. So, Stephen, that's just a, a small little blip there. We've had lots of conversations behind the scenes and with the class and things like that. And to me, I shared this before we started recording this idea of a space economy. Um, it really opened my eyes to the realities where we're still working in a lot of spaces to figure out how to work in a global society. Yeah, yeah we're, absolutely. We're expanding that. So um, not you have to like ex justify what you were saying there, but as, as you kind yeah. of, well, that's, I mean, I'm sure you haven't, didn't remember all the words you said on that night. Um, what things come to mind and, and, and what kind, kind of thoughts trigger as we think about the need for this type of learning experience in schools? Yeah, absolutely. Well, well, first that guy needs to chill out. He gets too excited about things. Um, but <laughs> so no, that so just think about you can be on Netflix or Discovery Plus or any of those shows or these those platforms right now and see show after show after show that's talking about this. Whether it's the documentary they did about sending William Shatner to space with Blue Origin, or the Inspiration Four that that flew with SpaceX and did three days of orbits, uh, none of whom being an astronaut. Um, in, here in Texas, in Brown, Brownsville, Texas, this, this little desert community has a huge spaceport where SpaceX is testing their, their Mars One rocket. Um, Richard Branson is, is flying Virgin Galactic right now. And there are people who are going to space who are not astronauts, who are not funded by a government. Now, we have to say at this point that most of those people have as much money as a lot of small governments, but, <laughs> but, but, right. But, but if we think back, um, you know, for me, my first sort of experience with, with what would be cell phones was when I was in high school 
a million years ago. And uh, next to me in my aeronautics class was this really good friend of mine whose dad installed car phones. Mm, yeah. And I was blown away. I thought that was some like serious, straight up James Bond stuff. Like, oh my gosh, can you imagine driving in your car and like, hey, honey, do we need milk on the way? Like that was just blowing my mind. Yeah. And now everybody has one, right? But back then, to have a phone was a status symbol and you had to be rich. Like if I, if I told you in 1986 that I had a car phone, that is code for what's one of those. How do I tell you I'm rich without telling you I'm rich? Right. Exactly. But the, the technology was awful. Like there, there were, there were huge, but you had to be in the right spot holding the, left pinky up at exactly a 45 degree, you know, it was, it just, it wasn't great stuff and it was expensive. So if you, if you sort of equate that to what we're doing now in, in space, um, and, and that's just talking about sending people to space, right? So it's, it's only going high enough in most cases to say, check, we've crossed the line that is officially space. Well, I mean, that's how we started, obviously Mercury, those first couple launches didn't orbit. They just went high enough to say, Alan Shepard is in space. Gus Grissom is in space. And they came back. But as time progresses and with technology today, technology itself is exponentially increasing our ability to adapt new technology, right? Because now we have computers that help us build better computers. We have robots that help us build better robots. Like all this sort of stuff is happening. So these changes are going to happen faster than they did in that previous iteration. So um, in a very, very fast amount of time, we've gone from having no private space organization that had any sort of legitimacy to now SpaceX is a major partner with uh, NASA. They provide all of our transportation of astronauts from Kennedy Space Center to the International Space Station at this point. Um, they won the contract to build, to build our ascent descent vehicle that will take astronauts from the orbiting platform uh, called Gateway down to the lunar surface. So these are private companies that are doing this work. Now, and again, that's just talking about moving people. We have a ton of organizations that are building facilities. Uh, Bigelow is working on a, 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 a space station that will replace the International Space Station. The International Space Station, the government operated um, laboratory is going to be coming down in about a decade. And so there are going to be only smaller private and other public um, properties floating in space. Nanoracks uh, builds uh, tiny satellites, with, which, by the way, they can make available to educators to do some cool things with and to do experiments. Um, they've built a huge um, airlock on the space. So it's not just getting people. It's doing stuff while you're there as well. So um, that's just moving quickly. And, and again, using that idea of the cell phone, the laptop, and all those sort of things and how quickly those changed and became ubiquitous in what we're doing, it's looking that way with space and, and that sort of thing. Also, because there are so many things that only work in microgravity, it opens doors for us for limitations that we've had for as long as we've been a species, I guess. So we're looking at um, a lot of medical breakthroughs that are going to happen because of the ability to grow protein crystals, 
in in zero gravity that aren't hindered or changed by the pull of gravity. Uh, that that's some work that's being looked at specifically for Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease. Um, these kind of things that are affecting all of us, and which, by the way, are kind of some of my biggest fears. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> um, so, um, and and on and on and on, and and the um, the breakthroughs that we're making in space aren't just about making us better at going to space. It's not just about us going to Mars. That technology can be used here and is being used here. The, the um, filtration system that pulls moisture out of the air in the International Space Station to then recycle it back into potable water is being used in tiny villages across the world where they don't have access to potable water. They're pulling it from the atmosphere where they can't pull it from the ground using our technology to do that. Uh, I mentioned the medical research that's being done. Um, the work that we're doing on figuring out how to feed the astronauts is going to then help feed us back here, whether that's uh, growing in uh, media and situations where you're not having to use a lot of resources because we can't take those with us as much, um, or even 3D printing food, maybe. Eventually, like, all of those things are going to be used back here. And there's a really wonderful uh, program called NASA Spinoff. Um, that you can actually check out and see all of the different things that are around you every moment of every day that have been developed for the space program uh, by NASA. And, and it's not just like super high-tech GPS stuff. It's, you know, the stuff that makes your dishwasher detergent work better. You know, it's it's just this little bit of stuff. And, um, and then to go further with that, um, one of the things people talk about right now, because this is a, a rich person's game, um, is like, well, why aren't they spending money on you name whatever the special interest thing is, right? Why are we wasting money in space? Well, nobody is spending any money in space. There is no cashier in space. All of that money is spent right here on our planet. So the tiny little town of Brownsville, Texas is is experiencing an economic boom because here's SpaceX. And all of the engineers that are coming in are spending money in their community. And there are little mom and pop shops that are able to feed them and clothe them and watch their children during the day. And the little industries that go up around um, supporting the building of the spacecraft and creating, I don't know, screws and widgets and whatever kind of things that happen. And it's just this exponential thing that that drives the economy. So right now we have this real hydrocarbon-based economy where, you know, we're unfortunately talking about things like you know russia's gonna do this in ukraine and yeah. they control three percent of our oil and and like a hundred percent of the natural gas in europe and you know so we are limited by where we are today technologically and all of the things we're discovering in space through um, energy and food and water and all the things that we're working on for that are just going to make all of these socio-political things and economic things better and again just like with cell phones and laptops and whatever, it's just going to become ubiquitous and, and going to become so quickly. There's going to be a, a time not too long in the future where you and your family go to low Earth orbit instead of Disney World. You know, it, it, right. it's that's that's coming. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. the 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 thing that comes along with that is the need for people who can think, the need for people who can see an issue for which there's not an easy solution, for which there's not already a tool made, for which there's not already a, a procedure in place to, to do the thing and can just do it. 
who start with the premise that there's a, a solution to every problem. And as they see those problems coming up, they're able to think their way through that. And the way that we teach our students that is not by opening a book and having them recite the whatever or memorize this list of words or whatever that is. It's by presenting them with real world problems like, oh, I don't know, the amazing thing we did with survivable <laughs> with your students there and then say, all right, you know, here's the parameters. Here's here are the tools you have available. Here's the resources that you have available. One, two, three, go. And I think the most important lesson that I heard from from every one of those students, and I got this pile of amazing letters from all these students, and to a person, the lesson that they learned, the thing that made the most impact that will help us as NASA, that will help us as a people going in the future is learning the importance of failure learning the importance of trying something and it not working and then what do you do yeah right right so that was that was profound and man that was a super long answer to a relatively simple question sorry yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was a great response there's a lot of things there that that, that i really want to unpack i mean let's just take the failure thing there there at the very end since that's uh, the most recent thing that popped into mind and one of the things is this seems obvious, almost like a duh statement, but I'm sure NASA has lots of failures of iterations of ideas all day long, all day, every day. I mean, I know that's like, yeah. duh. And I think, you know, talking about that idea of failure, you know, bringing that back to the context of a classroom, there's a wonderful opportunity for schools to present authentic learning experiences where kids have to undergo that process of, I have an idea, it's so good. And then I'm going to try to actually not just present it on a poster or a presentation or read off note cards, but actually now I'm going to have to execute that idea. And holy right. cow, that is really, really hard. And because I really don't know how to make it, I'll, I'm going to call it 3D. Um, yeah. The 3D world, I have to fail. Like it just naturally happens. And so how do we learn about ourselves through the ebb and flow of, working through that because when you do get it yeah. working there is no better no better feeling and i think a lot of times right. we feel like we don't have time to do that or oh, we don't want the kids to feel bad and i'm not saying you just say hey good luck you know if uh johnny's crying in the corner well learn to deal with failure like you have to teach intentional things of you know yeah your learning space and so what like you know i'm just thinking through the lens of, of nasa here and obviously i know you guys go through millions of tests and iterations of all the things. But mm -hmm. when you have people in those rooms, people working with the idea of failure, what are some of those like skills or mindsets that, that you look for, whether, I mean, I know you're not part of the hiring process, but you, we have people that you're like, okay, yeah. Yeah. I can handle this. Like what, like besides saying, you know, pull yourself right. about the bootstraps, what are some of those things? Because I think that's a, I think that's a hard piece. I think nobody is going to argue that we have to learn how to deal with failure. Like I think every teacher, parent, kid, anyone in the world would be like, yes, absolutely. But what are those? Yeah. But what's that mean? And what are those skills that we might need to be thinking about? Yeah. So um, I'm reminded of several different things. So, um, you know, Mike Tyson, I think uh, rather famously said that everybody has a plan until you get punched in the face. Yeah. Right. So um when you think about things that people do that are hard and or important, um, in the military, um, we run the real possibility of having to 
be in a situation where we might experience tear gas. It's a, it's a thing that happens. So what they do to every recruit, whether I think whether it's Navy, Army, Air Force, whatever, you go through being tear gassed. There's a chamber that you go into. They release the tear gas. You learn how to put your mask on. You learn that your mask works and they make you take it off. So you get to feel what it feels like if it doesn't. And a big part of that is to make you not so afraid of that feeling, that experience that you either completely avoid the situation or panic when that potential comes up. They do the same thing with police officers and tasers. They do the same thing, like in order for a police officer to carry the spray, the, the tear spray or whatever, they have to be sprayed. So it, it does it does both things. One, it makes you more empathetic and less likely to just willy-nilly tase and spray people, but also it makes you not as afraid to use it because if it backfires on you, you know what to expect. Right. So if we take that idea along with the importance of failure, so failure is where growth lives, whether we're talking about um, exercise and fitness, if you're only ever doing the simple things or unfortunately nothing, which is what a lot of people do, like there never is growth, right? That's not how you get fit. That's not how your muscles maintain, much less grow. That's not how your bones maintain their density you know, long into your um, uh, elderhood or whatever. Um, if you only ever test the students on the things they already know, if you're only ever asked questions you already know the answer to, there is no growth. There's not that there at best case you have stagnation where things just stay the way they are, but all too often, unfortunately, you're gonna go the other direction. So we know that it's important, like you said, that, that you have to have that failure. You have to be able to push beyond your current envelope in order to have any kind of growth. And we know that it's scary. So from a learning point of view, that's another one of the reasons that, that that true authentic PBL is important because that is the lesson ingrained in all of that. If you're building the model, I guarantee you it's not gonna work the first time and that's okay. When I came in in the middle of our project and, and worked with those students for that 10 minutes, probably 70% of those groups I had to like send back to the drawing board because they had worked their way into a corner or they hadn't done the pre-work that they needed to and they had to go back. It just was. Yeah. And that was getting punched in the face. That was getting sprayed that first time. That was getting, uh, you know, whatever it was. So that first jump you do off the high dive, whatever that is, is terrifying. But the second one isn't as much. And then the third one isn't as much. So if we can uh, indoctrinate, inculcate, inoculate the students from that fear of failure, which we are doing the exact opposite by and large, by the way, by putting so much import on, you know, this one-time test that you take and you either pass it or fail it, and then your state scores are what they are forever. Ah, whatever. So, yeah. <laughs> right? Um, instead of using um, assessment for what it's for, which is find out where you are so you know where to go. Assessment shouldn't be where the grade lives. Assessment should be part of the journey along the way. That's your, I built this model and now I'm gonna test it. And it doesn't work is an absolute 
viable answer to the question of does this work, right? Yeah. Whenever we're testing in science, we're always testing for the null hypothesis. We're always testing, trying to prove us wrong. That That's how important failure is. So at NASA, we look for the people who, when they see something impossible, their first reaction is, oh, I got to try that. Like, <laughs> let's, <laughs> right? And I'm a, I'm a CrossFitter, and so I think that there's some carryover with that idea too. Like, I see a workout, and, and my, when, I, when I think, like, there's no way that a human being can do that. That's just <laughs> not a thing. My reaction isn't, I'm going to go home and take a nap and drink a Yoo-Hoo. It's, crap, now I have to try it. And yeah. so much so that even it's even if it's supposed to be my recovery day, if I see something particularly ridiculous, I'm like, well, crap, I guess I'm not recovering today. Let's go. Like, <laughs> let's do this. Right. And more often than not, I am panting on the floor, having not finished whatever it was, having not been able to lift whatever it was or climb that rope one more time or whatever. But that's the good part. That That's the part where you're like, I have gone as far as I could possibly go. I, I gave it all. I wasn't afraid to hold back because I might not be able to do the thing. And then the next time we have that workout come up, I can do it a little better because I've learned through my failure, right? right. So at NASA, the James Webb Space Telescope took like 10 years mm. to put together. And you know, um, I came into NASA in 2016. And that year I got to see the James Webb Space Telescope when it was at Goddard. And it was all put together. They were undergoing tests. They were doing all those things. That was in 2016, and it just launched a couple of months ago. Yeah. Right. And that was it. Had already been built. It was put together then. But that many years of testing, that many years of oh, this thing failed or this didn't work exactly right, sent them back to the drawing board board over and over and over again. And if they had not if those people had not been used to failure, expecting failure, ready for failure, we wouldn't have the James Webb Space Telescope, which is six times larger than the Hubble and is going to answer questions that we didn't know to ask. <laughs> oh, right? Yeah. Um, and then astronaut after ast almost no astronaut that I know of has was picked up and uh, accepted their very first time they applied. Sure. I'm sure there's been a couple. But by and large, Clay Anderson applied 13 times. Jose Hernandez applied 11 times to NASA. So 12 times they were told no, 10 times they were told no. And so what did they do? They figured out why they got a no and shored up that little bit a little bit. So um, I, I, I got to listen to um, uh, Jose Hernandez tell his story. And like the first time he came in, he learned that most astronauts um, are scuba certified. So attempt number two, he went and got scuba certified, came back. Then he learned, well, most of them are also pilots. So attempt number four, he had gone and got his private pilot has license along with the scuba, along with the, along with the, right? And then he just kept building on those things that weren't working for him. Uh, Mike Massimino is a very famous astronaut. He's the one that was on uh, the Big Bang Theory and uh, all those sorts of things. Um, same thing, like he had some vision issues, but learned, well, I can get it corrected to this thing and, and I can do these exercises and I can do this whatever to make it better. And he helped fix the Hubble and like flew in space. So, um, so NASA looks for those people who don't just, who aren't just not afraid of failure, 
but who actively seek it, who actively look for what is my limit? Where is the edge of my abilities, of my understanding, of my uh, whatever, so that I can then go one step further? Because then the next time around, now I can go two steps further. And then the next time around, I can go three steps further. And that's with our engineers. That's with our photographers. That's with our, heck, it's with our human resource people. Like that's just the, the culture that we've built. And there's some real positives to that as well. Um, to, to get a little, a, a little side road, um, one of the things that I'm most proud of with this organization that I get to work for when we had the social unrest that came with the murder of George Floyd and all of those things that were happening and uh, these movements that we had in our country, a lot of organizations, including a lot of government organizations, shut the doors. They shut down, shut those conversations off. NASA didn't just embrace that idea. Knowing that we have failed in the past, on some of those civil rights inclusion kind of uh, questions, right? So those first many astronauts were white dudes. They were they were all um, uh, test pilots to begin with. So we, we had these very monostructural, <laughs> uh, monoculture sort of things that we did for a very long time. And that wasn't just the astronauts. You know, look in the rooms where the um, engineers were. Look in the rooms where Mission Control was. It it, it was just, a, and you can say it was a, we were a product of our time, and that and that's all true, but that doesn't mean it was right. So we embraced those failures of the past, and we we had these four pillars that we used for uh, to um, inform all of the work that we were doing. Things like innovation and creativity and integrity and like all these sorts of things. Well, we added a fifth pil a pillar that everything we did moving forward was going to include thinking about diversity, inclusion, and equity. And we're just gonna make it a part of what we do. And so I actually just found out this morning that my team won one of the most prestigious awards that NASA puts out, uh, which was the Team Innovation Award, which was the Team Innovation Award by doing this work, by having the hard conversations. And uh, you know, if you're just hearing my voice, you may not know that I am in fact like the third whitest dude on the planet. And like I check all the privilege boxes as an old white, white male, like blah, blah, all that sort of stuff. Um, so being willing to put yourself out there to realize like I've been using this word wrong or I've had this thing that I'm carrying with me or whatever was a big part of that as well. So this isn't just engineering, it's just peopling and how are we moving forward as a society and that not being afraid to fail. Uh, so, you know, not being afraid to go up to someone and ask what the pronoun is or, you know, whatever those hard things are, which might come back at you, which might, you might fall on your face. You might realize you had a prejudice that wasn't there. You might realize that you didn't know as much as you thought you did. But it's it's that kind of risk taking and this problem-based learning, teaching that idea of not just uh, accepting failure, but but seeking it out actively I think is so important, not just to future careers in NASA, but how do we move forward as a people? Yeah, I love that, man. It's just like applause right there if you're giving a keynote. Um, and as, you, <laughs> as, as you're talking, I mean, again, so many thoughts come to mind. And I try to think it back to the context of schools. And this here is another very important opportunity of why we need to do more of this work not just in in schools that have a brand new school and 
you know, all the money to be thrown at it. Like all students need these types of learning experiences for those very same things that you just talked about to make sure that yeah. everyone can have a seat at the table if they choose. And they never know the table even exists if we don't bring these types of learning opportunities and experiences to all our students. Um, we'll allow the work within STEM and computer science and, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of uh, diversity issues within computer science, which is the world where I spend a lot of time supporting schools. Yeah. And, you know, the, yeah, engineering too, same. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, we can just broadcast it. I hate to say mm -hmm. STEM because that means a lot of things, a lot of people right now, but that makes the most sense. You know, kids have their mind made up by sixth grade. And so if you are a female, you know, you can look at the trends and you didn't, you've mm -hmm. never had a computer science experience or STEM experience in your classroom where there should be opportunities for all. You're not going to magically say in your freshman year of high school, oh, let me take some of those courses. I mean, right. those stories exist, but they're few and far between. Um, yeah. How do we help kids see themselves in these roles? I mean, I'm knee deep in Marvel comics right now. And I listen to all the podcasts and just talking about so many people, um, especially the month of February, the writers and the illustrators and things like that, talking about, you know, uh, if you were an X-Men fan, Storm was your person because you could see right. yourself. That was the only person you could see to see yourself, you know, if you were, uh, uh, you know, if you're African-American. Um, same right. thing if you're on, you know, not to get in a wormhole of Marvel, Black Panther did the same thing. Yeah. And, oh, man. That's huge. Now, yeah. And now the comics have become so much more diverse. You're seeing all, not just, uh, you know, uh, the color of your skin, but all cultures. You're seeing all sorts mm -hmm. of gender and binary and things like that. And so it helps people wrap their head around that. Um, yeah. So where I want to segue from that um, a little more. So as we're talking, I know what a lot of educators are probably thinking. Great stuff. Great insight. You know, but NASA isn't a thing in our area. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. small rural school or community, you know, in my case, maybe the middle of Iowa, like it's just not in the cards. And you shared something to the students that was a huge light bulb moment. You did, it was over virtual. So I, I don't know that you quite felt it, but there was a moment that shifted all our kids when you were talking about there's only 44 astronauts and NASA employees roughly 100,000 people the 10 centers and you know 10,000 mm -hmm. people and so that's where I want want to speak on a little bit or maybe talk about some of that not like all the jobs that are there but why this yeah. is applicable and if you're an educator thinking well NASA is not in my curriculum no one cares about space in our area yeah the things we're talking about is not just for you to think about a kid being an astronaut you're talking about right. artists. You're talking about people who can write. You're talking about people who can communicate. You're talking about, obviously, engineers. And right. so these skills are universal. And it's not just of the 44. Um, I think that number is right. Uh, you yeah. know, of people that get to go to space. Like, I don't, I can't right. go to space. I can barely handle, like, a canoe with, on, on lake water. But Amen. <laughs> still, or your case, right? Like you're, you're still a, a huge, valuable insight into NASA, and we could take NASA and insert it with any other organization that we would like to. Mm -hmm. The things that we're looking for. What are those? We talked failure, but what are those other things? Um, so we can understand what we're talking about here. It's not just NASA, but just awareness of what 
everyone needs to be like you said, I like that word. So we can be better. You know, we should be doing more work in, in peopling. <laughs> the skills are yeah, absolutely. A hundred percent. And uh, so uh, a couple uh, so several things come to mind there. So, yeah. um, so this, these skills aren't just about, like you were saying, it isn't just about getting you to space. Go into whatever local university that you have, or even community college, and talk to them about the problems that the students who did really well in high school often have in that first year of college. Again, whether that's your community college, university, whatever it is, in schools where, like myself, so my superpower is standardized tests. I just, they make sense to me. I don't know why they make sense to me, they just do. Um, I was the student that didn't really have to study to get through school. When I walked into my first day of college, now I was, uh, my situation was very different. I was an adult when I came back to college, but it smacked me in the face because I had never learned how to study. I had never experienced not understanding everything that's going on in the classroom, right? Um, so that happens even in our good schools with the students who are just smart and we kind of push them through and they do well at tests and they come out with A's and B's, but they've never, we've never made them apply themselves. We never, you know, had them experience this something like problem-based learning. Um, this happens a lot in our minority um, heavy schools and our, our high poverty schools because this, the, the bar is moved so low for those students that even the valedictorian salutatorian come out of those schools woefully unprepared for what's next. So this isn't just about getting someone to space, it's about having them take that next step and just make it through. Because if you've never experienced that and you come in and you do poorly that first semester, the number of students that drop out with in that first experience of failure is huge. It's alarming. Yeah. It is. It's truly alarming. But the the idea these these other skills that you're talking about again those those are huge. Um, it's this um, with astronauts as an example, just because they're the coolest. Yeah. yeah. The the people that decide that you are going to be an astronaut. So there are there are. Bean counters and, and box checkers that, that look through your degree, look through your, your background and experience, look through all that sort of stuff, look through your physical um, abilities, your like all that. But the most important interviews to get through are the ones that are with other astronauts. So you can be the most brilliant human being on the planet. You can have all of the accolades, all of the doctorates, all of the uh, abilities and experiences, but if you cannot people. If you are not someone that anyone wants to be around, then no one is going to be want, wants to be stuck in a capsule with you for five minutes, much less two and a half to three years, right? So learning how to work on a team, learning how to participate and collaborate in addition to compete, learning how to share your thoughts and feelings and emotions and deal with failure from that behavioral point instead of kicking something and pulling a Kylo Ren and there's just super nerd out here, right? So, I just, I saw it. I saw exactly. I went there. Yeah. Um, you know, but those things matter. 
the, they, they really genuinely matter. So we have a whole thing, we call them expeditionary skills. So it's all of those sort of soft skills that people have or, or can develop through. And, and it, again, it's, it's the, you, you can say it's the things that you, you should have learned in kindergarten, right? It's the, <laughs> it's, you know, how do you do this? And, and a, a big part, again, going back to PBL, it's teaching the difference between collaboration and competition. So in order to be successful in a, within a team, the students have to let go of this desire. Why well, I need to be the one that leads the team. I need to be the one who, you know, gets all the accolades. I need to be the one who, and, and, and become the one who needs to participate, become the, the one who needs to bring their skills, not to show off, but to make the team better. And then there's, there are ways that you can do these. I have a, a really fun habitat one that I do. And I saw a lot of this with, uh, with our, our group up there uh, in Iowa, where the teams sort of worked with each other. So not just within the team, but the between teams. So I'm looking at this one piece of the puzzle. You're looking at this other piece of a larger puzzle. And if we can sort of think about how these two things might work together, that that's going to help inform my work as well as help inform your work. Uh, there's a fun habitat piece that I do where I, I break the uh, lunar habitat down into its uh, infrastructure components and create teams, each team looking at only one component of infrastructure. So one team may be looking just at food or just at water or just at transportation or whatever that is. But in order for their um, their one piece to work, they have to collaborate with all those other pieces, right? So I'm not going to grow food without water. I'm not going to get the food from point A to point B without transporting it. None of that's going to work without energy, right? And so they have to learn how to then work together to get what they need from those other teams as well as giving some help. And so it's less about my team winning and more about we're all getting there together. And you see more of that in this kind of space economy. So the International Space Station is 16 different countries, right, putting pieces and parts up together to make this work. Um, even though, obviously, on the political side, our uh, Russia and the United States are at odds all the time. On board the International Space Station and flying to and from and working with Roscosmos, which is the Russian space agency, it's, it's night and day. You know, we collaborate really well together. We build together. We're going forward to the moon together. We're making all these plans together, irrespective of, you know, what the, which elected official or, you know, I might use air quotes for some of those elected <laughs> officials on the other side. <laughs> it's like being voluntold. I think that's the same sort of idea. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um but the people who are doing the work, the astronauts, the scientists, the engineers, the, the people who are excited about this, this is a space is universal. <laughs> um, but it, it really, it, it, it bridges a lot of those gaps. It, and so, um, so even though you may not have a spaceport in your town, even though you may not be near Kennedy Space Center or near Johnson Space Center or JPL or whatever it is, um, the companies that are doing work on that are in every single state in our country. So let's just start there, which uh, there absolutely is some industry that touches space infrastructure somewhere nearby, right. you know, within a, with easily within a couple hours drive of where you are, no matter where you are. Yeah. But beyond that, as long as you have access to the interwebs, 
all of those resources are there. And um, NASA in particular works really hard to make opportunities for students by either collaborating with ongoing things, like uh, you know, you had this ongoing project that I was able to kind of tag in and bring NASA resources to bear to that, um, but we also have standalone challenges and standalone opportunities for students to participate in things. And even if your school has zero resources, all of the NASA resources are 100% free, 100% open source. And when we have challenges and we have those kind of things where, you know, the culminating events, you might be able to come to a center and all that, those are all fully funded. And so we pay for transportation. We pay for your food and board and, and whatever to get you to these things. So participation isn't about what resources you have, how much money your school has, uh, whether you're next to the NASA Center or not. Um, I do a lot of work in northern New Mexico between the Hopi Zuni and Navajo reservations. You think that you're in a place that doesn't have much? Unless you have been to one of those reservations, you are wrong. You, <laughs> you, have, you have not seen poverty until you've been to some of these places. Um, and they are fully participatory. They're doing amazing work. Uh, one of the... the um, uh, it's uh, Salish Kootenai uh, University, this tiny little college in the middle of Montana on the Flathead Reservation actually designed the cameras on board uh, Curiosity. Oh, wow. Their work is on Mars, right? Okay. So th this is possible. Like this is a part of what we are doing. It, this is happening. And so even if you're in rural Podunk, Yeehaw, USA, you still have a part in this. Um, you know, our astronauts come, come from all over. The work that we're doing affects everybody. Um, and then again, it's so private public at this point, so many contractors, so many different things that are going out. Again, you can throw a rock and you're gonna hit something that has to do with what we're doing in space. Right. So um, also to go a step further than that, even if you, let's take that out of the equation. Let's say that this, the space isn't even a thing. We'll, we'll, we'll pretend that the flat earthers are right. And we, we, none of this is true. Um, the rest of the industries around you are all heading that direction also, right? Whether it's healthcare, what, you know, they're doing 3D printing, they're doing uh, robotic um, surgeries, they're doing you know, the pharmaceutical industry, construction, like you name it, all of this stuff is moving in this direction. All of this, all of these companies, they, they are not looking for people to stand in line and push button X every time widget Z comes past them anymore. That is just not a thing. Uh, like I said in the little snippet there, the industrial age is dead. Long live the digital age. We are in that time. Um, we're not develop, developing new steam engines. This is just not, it's not a thing. Right. Um, we are moving away from that. And, and just like with the previous age and people were talking, well, you know, if the, if the horseless buggy is never going to catch on and <laughs> yeah, this is all just a fad. And, you know, it, every age pulls away from the previous one kicking and screaming. Right. So that's where we are. We have these people and I'm from Kentucky. I, I grew up in a family of tobacco farmers. Well, you know, that's not a 
growth industry right, <laughs> right now. <laughs> you know, a lot of coal miners in Kentucky too. Same sort of thing, you know, and sure, black lung was good enough for grandpappy, but maybe, maybe there's a better way to do it, right? <laughs> so, so, um, so all of these, again, even pretending that NASA isn't a thing, all of our society, all of our economy, everything is moving in that direction. It may be moving faster or slower in some places. It may be dragging, kicking, and screaming some of the previous whatevers, but this is happening. And yeah. so you're either going to be prepared for it or you're not. And if you're not, you're going to get left behind. Yeah. And um, we, it, I'm really trying hard not to be political here, but you know, we have about 30-ish percent of our population right now that is really anti-science, is really anti-understanding and what actual research is, right? And that number needs to get smaller, not just for any political reasons. This is not a political statement. It is a, a statement about the public health, the things that we've been dealing with for now two years, which it didn't need to be that long. Um, the... the climate change, like all these things that we are all going to experience that are these global events. Okay, I'm done pretending the earth is flat. <laughs> these actual global events. Um, oh, I'm sorry, my cuckoo clock. <laughs> Speaking of European, um, it's, <laughs> geez, what time is it? Ooh, it got late. Anyway, so um, even with, um, whether you want to believe it or not, those things are going to happen to you, right? The the climate is changing. The storm is coming. The water is doing whatever it's going to do, irrespective of whether you have your fingers in your ears or not. So we can either all be part of the solution and mitigate for all of these things or not. And we get two years of ridiculousness dragging on because. Right, right. Yeah, no, it's a very good point. I think that's part of the work of education too, is to help intentionally teach some of these skills, uh, help teach this the perspective really to, to understand yeah. others and, and understand what's really going on in the world. And no matter where we live, no matter our beliefs, this and that, like there is a human connection around the world where, you know, I think at the end of the day, we're after the same things. We don't have to be pitted against yeah. each other. Like it's, you know, right. and so it's, it's building an understanding and an awareness. And the way you do that is to, you know, take time. You have to dive in, um, but to give yourself the opportunities to develop the skills to allow you to see all sides, all perspectives, all things happening in order. Mm -hmm. to, I like what you said there to, to be part of a solution. Yeah, it's a cultural competence that you have to get. Yeah. And another skill that stood out to me that the, the students that I heard, especially in that first 10 minute, um, the 10 minute breakout sessions with the students was learning what it means to actually research something yeah. versus just, you know, Google, look for the answer you were already thought you knew and stopping there. <laughs> versus what it, what it means to really research something. Yeah. Um, because in, I think that's the thing we hear a lot. Well, you know, I did my research, but did you? Yeah. Well, you, know, that was the, you know, we had, we had some, some really tough conversations at that and it was actually yeah. about, it's the best way to go about doing it because having a, an expert that's outside of the classroom, give quality feedback and challenge your thinking 
opened up our way to go back in and go, this is what we are trying to ask you. And that idea of research and um, be respectful of time here too, because I know I've had yeah. you here for quite a while, but you know, we, the kids did that. And, and one of the big things we talked about the first time they got a chance to meet with you uh, was this idea that you are in control. You're not going into this, just sitting there waiting for him to give you answers. Like you have to take, you have to be in the driver's seat of this. And now that, that first right. time, what they did, they tried to come prepared and they had a set of questions and they would ask their right. first question. And you would challenge them on either two ways. One, they were the idea was irrelevant because it's not a not a not a problem, or it's been solved, or it's not really the direction maybe they need to look at. And you would give them that right. insight, and you would nudge them of where to explore. But because education has been so linear, typically in a lesson, right? We we introduce, we typically give them the challenge, we give them the thing we want them to create, and then we give them. Right time to research. And then that research is usually done. Then it goes into then making your, your presentation and you wipe your hands. And in this case, yeah, they came in, they felt they did the research. They felt good about it. You challenged them in an awesome professional way. And even though you were guiding them and giving them new things to think about, they couldn't help but go back and now go ask question two. That now is still yeah. irrelevant because the first question, <laughs> you know, but, but they had to experience that. When we came back and I talked about like you wasted yeah. the opportunity. I mean, it wasn't wasted, but you had time with right. an expert. Um, and so that moving forward in our future conversations with other people and other experts and even working with you beyond that, they really started to take the bull by the horns going, yeah, this, I, I'm in charge. I need, I'm yeah. willing to have them help me. I'm not going to sit here and wait for the answer, but they had to undergo that prop, that process. Like, you know, it comes back to that idea of, of failure and those types of things um, because then they had to go back and research again and then research again. And we had to keep coming back to this. Like it's a constant cycle. Um, exactly. That was the best part of that. So that, yeah, I, I, I completely agree. And, those are, those are life skills, whether in your personal lives or your professional lives, um, things of that nature, which is yeah. well, hard, and, and hard people to get to, you know, it's not, it's not yes. easy. No, it's not. And, um, and people with a background in physics and engineering in particular end up being highly sought after, not just in physics and engineering, but throughout the business world, throughout industry, throughout whatever, because of that. Because their brains become wired, that they develop the skills to understand that learning, that challenges, that all these things are cyclical. If you look at the scientific method or you look at the engineering design uh, method, you, you, you know, yeah, you start with the question, but you end up in this loop where you're looking for an answer, testing the answer. And then coming back and fixing because, you know, you failed at whatever it was. And, you know, going back and forth, back and forth, uh, publishing your failures so that the next person doesn't have to make the same one. Like all those sorts of things. Um, that's actually th those skills are sought after, again, not just in engineering, not just in space, but at, you know, Barnes and Noble corporate, like whatever right. place that they're dealing with issues, that they're thinking about problems. They want people who think like that. Yeah. And having students go through what what our students did that sixth grade class and so many others around the country that are doing amazing work like this it just makes all the difference and i, I know another thing that that teachers will be thinking too is like man that would be really great but i have insert 
state standardized test here coming up. You know, in Texas, it's the STAR test or in the ITB, like whatever acronym test you're using, we've become this test-driven education system and teachers are afraid to not teach to the test. They're afraid to not um, fret and worry about giving practice quizzes and all that sort of stuff. And I will tell you as a classroom teacher for 20 years, um, and the reason that I am where I am is because um, my students, even though I taught inclusion classes, which is uh, special ed and regular ed classes put together, my classes would regularly outscore the gifted and talented and honors classes in all those tests because I focused on teaching critical thinking skills. My students could look at those tests and understand them in a way that the students who are just looking for the rote answer to the thing they memorized never will. You can present them with, with a question that I may not have covered, but they can use their critical thinking skills, their logic, their deduction skills that I've given them, and they'll have a good shot at answering that question correctly. Yeah. So if you teach these skills, and that's what they are, they are skills, yeah, yeah. then they can apply those skills across the board, even to these scary standardized tests that that shouldn't matter as much as they do, but do. And those those problems just sort of take care of themselves. They do. Yeah, I love that. You know, I, I want to be respectful of your time, even though I, I would love to do the conversation for four more hours. Um, but... <laughs> to maybe kind of bring this to a closure here. I mean, you've given us so many food for thought. I'm crunching notes and quotes and ideas and things that I want to make sure I highlight and even more things for me to think about my own personal learning and my own journey as a lifelong learner um, in a lot of these fields. But to wrap up here, any final thoughts or, or something you want to address that hasn't been shared? Um, and then, you know, we'll kind of bring this to a close. All your contact information and NASA links, and then I know most, almost all of those now I made a list of things you shared yeah. will all be, be posted for resources, but Perfect. any, any final thoughts or, or words on, on your end here, Steve, you've already provided so much, but something maybe we didn't cover, yeah. something you want to highlight. So I think the thing that I most want teachers to know is that you're not alone. And I, I know that as educators, we become the scapegoats for all the things right? All of the woes of society that, that we tend to be that first sort of line of scapegoat defense or whatever that, you know, well, if teachers were just doing what they were supposed you know, all that nonsense. Um, I will tell you that you are not alone. And I represent only one of many organizations who are here to support and help you. Uh, NASA has I can, I can drown you in free resources, uh, not the least of which is myself and uh, many of my colleagues who this is our job is to be here and help you. Um, I can, I, I am uh, able to, just like I, I did with Aaron, you know, if you're working on a project and you need a collaborator, you need some help, all you have to do is send me an email and we and I can absolutely help you in, in uh, including coming on site and working with your students and talking with them and, um, bringing hands-on resources and all that sort of stuff. And I'm not the only one who does this. Um, you know, the, the National Science Foundation and NOAA and Smithsonian, there's so many different organizations that have outreach like this. I'm only speaking for one and I can't speak intelligently about all of those because I only work for this one. 
Um, but you are not alone. And know that there are people like Aaron and I who, you know, we're we're really good friends, but when we're hanging out, we kind of still talk about the same thing. <laughs> so, so, so there are people who are nerding out about this and who are thinking about it and who are concerned about it and, and you know, for whom it keeps them up at night and all these sorts of things. So you are not alone in this. Um, seek out community, whether that's a, a state science teacher convention. Uh, we have a, a really great organization in Texas for teachers of the gifted and talented in particular. There's a wonderful uh, um, conference at Space Center Houston every year called SEEK, S-E-E-C, uh, that brings in teachers from all over the world and not just all over the country. And they have scholarships for those too to bring, uh, to bring teachers in. And, and most of these big conferences do. So seek out community. Find people who are thinking about this stuff so that you're not in this alone. Um, if you're lucky enough to be in a school that has administrators that care, put them in touch with me. Um, I was able to go down recently to the Rio Grande Valley to the most impoverished uh, county in Texas and uh, really kind of light on fire this uh, this amazing program that they have down there. And I'm able to collaborate with them and help point them in the right direction and be the middleman for opportunities and for uh, resources. So use me. I like it. Um, find your local person. Uh, th they like it too. Um, but you're not alone. Reach out and ask for help because um, you don't have to do this by yourself. I love it. And what a perfect uh, idea to end on here. Stephen, this has been phenomenal, very insightful, thought-provoking, not just for the world of education, but I think for all of us as people, um, just, you know, even adults such as myself to figure out how we can maybe spark a change to be better um, to help everyone else. And I think, you know, I'm going to keep that word of, of, of peopling because that's, that's really where we're at, yeah. you know, at, at, at the core of all this is absolutely peopling, you know, to kind of be part of the solution and, and we can play a small role, a large role, as long as we're, you know, I think challenging ourselves to, to create a positive ripple in the universe. So really, really appreciate your insights here today, Stephen. Of course. Woke up at six o'clock in the morning, chilling with coffee mugs, me and coffee chugs, talking education all across the nation, pushing boundaries, thinking innovation.